Welcome to another episode of On Stage at Housing Works Bookstore Cafe, a bi-weekly podcast featuring highlights from some events at our downtown Manhattan bookstore. This episode has clips from three of our May events, Say It to My Face, Years and Hours, and The Breakbeat Poets. I'm podcast producer Colin Drowen, and I'll be back in two weeks with a new episode. In the meantime, feel free to subscribe and check out some of our older episodes. Enjoy! On May 11th, we hosted the fourth installment of the show, Say It to My Face, Confronting the Comments section. Here, Drew Grant talks about how James Franco has played a role in her blogging career. I've actually kind of given up on the internet because news of any sort makes me very anxious. And the other side of the internet is the forum and commenting section, which also makes me really anxious. Um, And yet, somehow, I've been successfully blogging on the internet since 2007. So I've been involved in some nasty trolling, and what really bugs me about it is when you can tell how hard the trolls have tried to come up with something like funny and inventive. When, you know, like the best one ever is just, you are the worst. That's like the meanest thing you can say to someone. It's simple, it's like concrete, just you are the worst. Literally cannot give it a rest. A total psycho pervert. A model of how to use social media to convince the world that you're straight. Okay. Without even uh, technically falling into the realm of cyberbullying, you can review someone's uh, writing as an insane, incoherent essay with prose that reads like a high schooler's first attempt at dialogue. You know, like that's clunky. You know, you could fix that up a bit. Um, or my personal favorite, a weird inside joke. This is about writing. A uh, weird inside joke that even your other personalities aren't finding funny anymore. So. That wasn't my proudest moment. Oh yeah, sorry, let me back up. I wrote all those things. <laughs> and I wrote them all about one person. And it all started on my Tumblr when in 2009 I wrote, you shouldn't approach James Franco with your movie ideas in class. That is, unless, of course, you want to appear in his next homoerotic film. So under the auspicious title, the best James Franco story ever told, I related a story by an NYU student whose friend of a friend uh, said that they were getting conned into participating in James Franco's student film, uh, The Feast of Stephen. And to be fair, the stories were like totally bizarre. So here's a quote from this original post. Uh, And Franco was in a wheelchair with blankets covering his legs like FDR and a camcorder in his hand. And he gets out the script for a shoot and it's basically a simulated anal sex porn scene in Central Park. How can you not write about that? (laughs) Um, The thing is, there was like no sourcing really on this story, and that last part ended up in New York Magazine's profile of Franco, but luckily they attributed it only to a bizarre Tumblr. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, I actually, based on that piece, I did get hired for my first full-time writing gig at uh, crushable.com, and I just remember being so insecure. Like, what was I even good at? Well, people liked it when I shat on James Franco, so I figured I would just keep doing that relentlessly for just like a little over five years. (laughs) So in that time, I left Crushable to work at Salon, where my Franco headlines became increasingly like unhinged. So first one early on, Rise of the Planet of the Apes, science's worst idea yet. It's not too bad. Um, Jane Franco's long con of sexuality and fake art. 
James Franco promotes self-mutilation as art. This is about the time he got Brad Renfro's name carved into his skin with a knife and had someone film it. Anyway, fair. Um, and the James Franco academic pyramid scheme, which was like my version of like, you know, taking on Scientology. And <laughs> it marked actually like a change in the tone I used to berate James Franco in because now I was righteously angry for what I perceived as an abuse of higher education, which is something I clearly feel passionate about. <laughs> so I had written, uh, his class is a Warhol factory that farms out his own work to other students under the guise of teaching, while he himself barely participates. Shame on the universities that are letting him get away with this just because he's famous. <laughs> and I remember at the time like being legitimately furious about James Franco's various degrees, the stories of which I tracked obsessively. Like I was like one of those rogue agents like Russ Cole or Carrie Matheson on Homeland with like a pin board and some string, <laughs> except like in mine, like it was just pictures of the Green Goblin asleep at an NYU lecture <laughs> from different <laughs> angles. And let's be clear, it's not like I was overly concerned about the truth or facts. Franco was one of my, target of my burgeoning satirical side. One of my first pieces at Salon was about how James Franco was trying to get into the Grammys to pick up an award for Best New Artist, except he hadn't actually done a song or anything. So just as at the scene, this bodyguard is not letting James Franco into the Grammys. Franco, said Hank, motioning to the bit of paper, this isn't your song. This isn't even a song. This is just the lyrics to Katy Perry's hit single, Fireworks, except you replace all the references to Fireworks with your own name. <laughs> James Franco nodded seriously. Exactly. Oh man. Um, so, but for all this like, you know, nasty stuff I wrote about James Franco, and it was around, I think like, 30 to 45 blog posts. Um, it never occurred to me that maybe he'd actually read one, and until he did, it certainly never occurred to me that he'd respond. So on May 16th in 2012, James Franco took to his Huffington Post column for the second time ever to write an innocuous titled post on commencement speeches. There's like a ton of jokes I want to make here, but I can't just be reading my best hits, so I'll just dive into what he wrote. The New York Observer, a newspaper owned by Donald Trump's son-in-law, fair, that is perhaps best known for publishing a sex column in the 1990s, also fair, took issue with a piece I wrote in the Huffington Post about ghost tours in New Orleans. It's actually, originally this read, uh, known as New York's second best pink-colored newspaper, but I think Elizabeth Spires got in there and joined in the Malay, and then uh, it changed since the last time I looked. Then he writes, this is the writer's opening sally. See, I think he meant opening salvo, which is actually a phrase, but we all make mistakes. <laughs> so please keep in mind that idea while I read this thing that James, James Franco quoted me in writing. James Franco, the real voice of our generation, has taken time out of his busy schedule of art and teaching and also learning to begin a Huffington Post diary. It's about time, exclamation point. So what important issues of our time is Mr. Franco tackling? President Obama's stance on gay rights, the construction of Marina Abramovich's performance space over on the Hudson, his new album, perhaps? I was really waiting for this album to drop, apparently. <laughs> Those are all great guesses, but James Franco is actually here to talk to us today about a matter close to his heart haunted tours in New Orleans that he took with his Nana, which is the name of his Japanese hairdresser, not his grandmother. <laughs> so, not my best. Uh, nothing I wrote about James Franco was ever my best, but in my defense, this 
Sally was particularly rushed because I just needed to get through my intro and block quote his entire first piece. And I'm only going to read you one graph from it because I know we're getting into a sort of Chris Nolan spiral thing here. But uh, just bear with me because this is amazing. For context, James Franco's hanging out with Nick Cage and touring all his haunted properties. <laughs> it was the site of a horrific medical carnival experiment on slaves in the vein of human centipede. Living and dead victims with a variety of mutilations, amputations, limbs exchanged between people, sexes switched, meaning dicks were sewn onto women, skin flayed in designs to turn the victims into human caterpillars, and other grotesque monstrosities. The house is still occupied, but it has not had a single owner for more than a five-year period. See, ironically, I thought this was actually one of his pieces of better writing. Um, <laughs> my post wasn't a thing onto itself so much as just well, to continue the human centipede metaphor, it was like the generically blonde, attractive co-head with unrealistically large uh, boobs just sort of sewn in there in the middle somewhere, just like a gaping orifice, but it doesn't actually do anything of itself. Don't get too invested. <laughs> James Franco got invested. He continued his uh, HuffPost Live Journal chronicles with, um, yes, this is all true. I didn't write about the president's stance on gay rights. I figured there was enough talk about that already. Plus, who wants to hear an actor's take on it anyway? I didn't write about Marina, but only because we were doing an episode of Iconoclast for the Sundance channel together. <laughs> and I figured everyone, everything one would want to know about her would come out then. And yes, I am working on an album with my high art school band, but I wouldn't want to write about an article for HuffPost that promotes my own work. Maybe the great journalists at the New York Observer should stop wondering why I'm not covering Obama or Abramovic and start asking themselves why, instead of covering pressing world issues, they are covering my writing, which they claim to consider petty. And this is basically what my entire career had been leading up to, right? A pissed off movie star telling me publicly and personally to fuck off. Like, that's like the dream of blogging. Um, but instead of being thrilled, uh, I read Franco's response, which, by the way, after this, like, just veered in completely off track story about the one time he did meet Obama and got really good advice about commencement speeches and how he was still really pissed off that UCLA never let him give a commencement speech, so then he just reprinted the whole thing. Um, but I, I just was reading this with a growing sense of guilt and shame because that blustering defensiveness that he employed and that vo voice he used that was equal parts anxiety, barb sarcasm, and an almost pathological sense of martyrdom. I think everyone here knows that voice. That's the voice you hear in your head after you've been trolled by assholes on the internet. I know how this feels because as an asshole on the internet, I had been victim as well of a perpetrator of a nasty common culture. So just to prove I'm not the worst, uh, I pulled a couple choice quotes about myself. So you know that if I was a monster to James Franco, it was just a pretty quote, quote at the time. So this is uh, first response is someone mentioning my now husband on the internet. Uh, he's fucking Drew Grant who remains the worst person I've ever met. That's personal, like they've met me? That's <laughs> <laughs> Drew Grant is dumb beyond imagining. Not just dumb as in slow, dumb as in this bitch must be fucking with me. Probably. <laughs> also, a terrible, terrible writer. She had a stint at Salon where her every post was just a new low and bad writing about stupid shit. Before I knew it was a she, I thought they had hired a 14-year-old boy. The writing was about that level. Or because my name is Drew, and you probably thought I was a dude. It's a common mistake. Opening Sally. Um, 
Is she lazy or is she just dumb? Or does she not give a shit? Anyway, her posts often include mistakes and oversights and typos and grammatical errors more often than not, and has bugged me since she was at Crushable. Longtime fan. <laughs> this bitch must be fucking with me? I'm so relieved others have noticed. This was all from one thread, by the way. All I can say in my defense was by the time James Franco responded, I'd ceased to think of him as a human being with feelings. I, in fact, managed a pretty successful career, like trading in verified gossip and bitchy comments under the justification that celebrities aren't real people. I didn't hate James Franco. He was my meal ticket. It wasn't personal. If anything, I was probably like a little too obsessed with him, but it's not like I ever cashed a paycheck thinking, that's my hard-earned reward for trolling somebody. I guess a part of me never considered that he might actually read it. That something I wrote just like off the cuff to fill up space as we all do could actually hurt someone and make them feel as bad as I do when I read shit people, shit, uh, people write about me. And I'm no James Franco. So just the coda to that is after that, not immediately because I first needed to respond to his response of my response of his <laughs> blog post about Nick Cage and human centipede ghost tours. But eventually, I deleted James Franco from my Google alerts. I stopped searching for reasons to call him out on his still dubious academic record and pretentious side projects. Most impressive to myself, I made it all the way through those Sony hacks with only like one tweet about how it would be just like James Franco to create a shitty comedy that the whole country now feels patriotically obliged to watch. <laughs> and since then, I've only written one tweet about James Franco, which wasn't even that mean. And this is from April 17th, so. Sorry, but when James Franco says something is a hashtag true story, my first instinct is to call bullshit. Well, you know, I'm a work in progress. Thank you. And on May 12th, we hosted Years and Hours with Heidi Julevitz, Richard McGuire, Kate Zambreno, and Pamela Paul to celebrate Julevitz's new diary book. The group talked about their different individual approaches via diaries, books, lists, art, real estate, whatever, to time. Here, Julevitz shares how she was able to organize her book, The Folded Clock. Okay, so time, right? So I'm thinking um, a, a title that I didn't use for my book, but you'll understand why it was um, foremost in my mind, was How to Navigate Today. Um, so, okay, uh, you know, I'm a professor. I feel like one of the things that uh, students and students like us have um, a difficult time dealing with is the issue of time, how to deal with time. Um, because books don't happen in real time usually, except for the people who are reading them. And um, time passes at different rates for um, readers, writers, and characters. And how, as a writer, do you calculate and orchestrate these different rates, right? When you're coming up with kind of a container for your um, book. Um, and then uh, also I was just thinking about the pressure of history, right? Even if you've made somebody up, they have a history. So how much are you like responsible for talking about that history? Um, how can all of time not be your responsibility as a writer? This is actually really something that you have to kind of decouple yourself from, this responsibility. How do you do that? Um, how is the future not an, or, or how is the past not a, like a drag anchor, right, on your present day narrative? And how also is the future not this like, thing that you're hurtling toward at the expense of the present? These are all things that I feel like with other writers I end up talking about a lot. And anyway, so I came up with the answer to these questions. Um, <laughs> and what you need 
is one of these. Um, this is a tap handle. Um, okay, so this tap handle, I found it in the wall of my house um, when we demoed it because we were stupid and we left the water full, uh, the pipes full of water and they burst and we had to demo our wall. And so this is like a hot water tap handle. I found it. I had this like incredibly weird, I'll just say it, quasi-erotic relationship to this object that I could not quite understand. I couldn't figure it out. And at one point I was talking to an artist who said, oh, you have l'amour fou which is um, a surrealist affliction, apparently, that um, Andre Breton talked about in a book called Mad Love. Um, so of course I went and I bought this book, Mad Love, to understand a little bit more about the sickness that I suffered from. Okay. I'm doing this a little bit like Pecha Kucha. Has anyone ever done Pecha Kucha before? It doesn't matter anyways. Okay, okay, so here we go. So this is, um, okay, this is a Dora Maar photograph of a Giacometti statue. Okay, so um, Breton in this book, Mad Love, which I really recommend you all read because it's one of those books that I read it and I was like, this is amazing. And then the minute I put it down, I could literally not remember a single thing that I had read. <laughs> so, um, so anyway, so I'm going to actually have to quote him because I can't actually recreate for you what happens in this book. But anyways, he talks about the surrealist state of mind as disdaining in the last analysis the prey and the shadow for what is already no longer a shadow and not yet prey, the shadow and the prey mingled into a unique flash. What? Yeah. Okay. So that sounds very abstract. So, all right. So what he was talking about, he ends up like embedding this in the story of this statue where essentially he loves this statue so much because of the arms and where the arms are. And he gets really freaked out basically that Giacometti who's single is going to fall in love with some woman. He's worried about a feminine intervention. And he's worried that if there is a feminine intervention that Giacometti is going to lower the statue's arms, which in fact happens. So Giacometti falls temporarily in love. He takes the arms away. Um, Breton is super upset. Then Giacometti falls out of love. He puts the arms back. But anyways, when the arms were gone, um, Breton said that um, what upset him was the disappearance of the invisible but present object. I'm going to say that again because I think that's kind of confusing. The disappearance of the invisible but present object, which I think is kind of interesting because what he's saying is that the object has an object, but the object is invisible. Um, and somehow that invisible object that the object has can be destroyed. Okay, next slide. Okay, so because I was having a problem with time, not just in writing, but also in my life, I was having a time problem in my life. I felt like time was passing me by really quickly and I wasn't appreciating anything and basically I was like, I'm hurtling to the grave, I'm gonna be dead, like in no time. And so I thought I needed to like reel back and try to appreciate my days and also this seemed to somehow be involved with this tap handle. And so I started to draw this tap handle every day and I don't draw, which is quite apparent from this. Um, and so I would draw it and draw it and draw it, and I'd date it. And a couple of things sort of interested me about this activity. Um, one, that it was a way to mark each day, but also that it was a way to work on a page, like on a page. And as a writer, all of many of us who are writers, I don't think many of us like interact with the page anymore. Um, and so this kind of interested me um, and then that made me think of um, sort of various constraints that um, I had 
used as a kid when I used to be an obsessive diary keeper. So next slide. Um, this is a page from my diary from 1978. Today, instead of having math, we had Officer Friendly come and tell about the new right on red law that was going into effect today, <laughs> May 1st. He also showed us a skateboard movie, and it was really neat. Um, so, all right, so you get the idea. Like, this was seriously just such a marker of my future genius as a writer. Um, uh, clearly, I was meant to do nothing else except maybe be a traffic cop. Um, and, uh, but I think what was um, interesting to me about this was um, after I got off over like the humiliation of not having been um, a genius at the age of 10 was, um, was the fact that it starts with the word today, right? That this is like this marker in time. This is like a way to like stick a stake in time. Um, and I also kind of like the space limitations. So when I wrote every day, like you couldn't go over the page. Like the page was the end of it. Like you had to tell everything that you were doing within the confines of a page. Okay, so next slide. This is um, mostly just because I got a tripod recently for my iPod and from my phone, and so I wanted to use it. So um, this is a page, but I, <laughs> I thought about the page. Like for a minute I thought, all right, well maybe I'm gonna write a book where I just write on pages and I like use the page as a piece of real estate that I respect, or it's like a container or a box, right? But for some reason, A, because I'm not an artist, I just, it felt like super 2D to me. Like I felt like I was like, I felt like I was bouncing off of this thing. Like I couldn't like get into it. Um, and so, um, so I invented something else. You can go to the next one now. I invented this. Um, <laughs> Anyway, so this is how blank pages look to many writers, right? Um, but what I think is sort of interesting, and I was trying to actually mimic, and I didn't do it very well, I was trying to mimic the statue holding her nothing when I, mean, I was holding my computer. But okay, so this, but the computer itself is an object that has an object, and like, like the statue holding something invisible, um, and the computer is holding this present but invisible object, which is basically like infinite space that you can just write into and write into and write into and write into. Um, and this is um, obviously uh, not much of a limitation, right? This is not really limiting me in the way that I needed to be limited. Um, so I fortunately have a really nice friend who looks out for me at yard sales and knows that I like navigational books, and so he bought me these things. All right, he bought me, um, not these two copies, but he bought me a book called How to Navigate Today, which is literally a navigation book about like celestial navigation, which I actually do know how to, to do because I learned it for a book report in like fifth grade. Um, and, uh, and anyway, so I love that it was how to navigate today. Like, how do you navigate like the day, right? Um, and I like that these two covers actually suggest two different ways of navigating today or navigating space, if you think again of the page and then the computer screen. One is a ship like going across, right? It's like a plane. But then the other one is a sphere that it, it, you could kind of go through, right? I mean, it's, it has this sense of like 3D space versus 2D space. Um, and again, I thought of that computer screen blank that I had shown before, which also kind of mimics Richard's cover, which you'll see very soon. Um, and how, in a weird way, that is kind of like this, to me, it's like inward. It like invites you inward. And it allowed me to think of time in sort of a vertical way instead of a horizontal way. Um, okay, and then this is the final one. 
This is like the other object that kind of helped me organize this whole book. So this is a family Rolodex that I found in the trash can of JFK Airport. Um, and <laughs> there's actually a quote from this essay that I found by Margaret Iverson that wrote um, about ready-maids ready and found objects in which she, um, she says, the found object is encountered and the effect is traumatic. And I can actually tell you that the effect of finding this at the airport in the trash can was totally traumatic because I was like, I mean, do I throw it away again? Or like, do I take it with me? And I did take it with me. Um, and what I did is I played with it a lot. Like I just flipped and flipped and flipped and flipped and everything is in technically chronological order, but you can spin the thing and then it just flops open. And then you can kind of decide to proceed through it, but then all of a sudden like the odometer rolls over and then suddenly this person who you got to know him as like a teen, right? Suddenly he's a baby again before you get to the end of the story. So it kind of inverts the whole idea of like chronology or it challenges this idea of chronology, but you're still within this kind of hermetic system, which to me is what that sphere was um, on that book cover that I found very um, inspiring. So yeah, there we go. Time, objects, spheres, Rolodexes. Um, I'm done. Finally, on May 13th, we celebrated the release of the Breakbeat Poets, New American Poetry in the Age of Hip Hop the first poetry anthology by and for the hip-hop generation. Here, you'll hear from contributors to the book Adam Faulkner, Angel Nafis, Sarah Blake, Aziza Barnes, and Joshua B. Bennett. If you don't know, after the Notorious B.I.G. Shirtless and grass-stained, you scowl at your own 12-year-old reflection in the bedroom mirror. Strike your hardest LL for the camera. Grip the backs of your own bird blades like holds on a climbing wall. And dare the boy in the glass to say something back. You never thought that hip hop would take you this far. The pictures on the wall, the castle of crisp sneakers still in their boxes, track jackets to match, words that fit like strange origami in your cavity-free mouth. The only white boy you know who can do it like this. And sure people laugh, call you fool. After all the public housing that you boast of to the mirror and the interviews by the pool, all these minks you buy your mother, all just a dream. Gasoline in an imaginary engine propelling you away from the soft, pliable furniture of your boring suburban nest. But you know very well who you are a home too haunted to sleep in, a tourist walking circles in a city they did not build. You study the shape your mouth makes around words like common and thief, dead and broke, until finally you reach the part of the song that is not yours to say. Even white boys like you, who aren't really white at all, except for their ability to completely disappear. Leap into the wind, board a return flight when the clock strikes homesick. But the way you say it is different. You give it something special. Soften its bite so that it hardly feels like a blade at all. So even the boy in the mirror cannot tell that it's you, how deep your hunger for a culture to weep for, a struggle to wrap your own two arms around, or a roadmap to follow, another fire to hold. You are the source. 
the genesis of a new kind of white boy with flypaper for hands, fat with guilt you just don't have time to name, a fitted cap that fits like a parade mask. <laughs> you roll the word around in your mouth like a jawbreaker, slap it against the drywall of your bedroom and swallow its colonial flair like cheap whiskey. Add it to the growing pile of things that you can never give back. Legend, my cigarette's cold turkey dad. My whiskey cold turkey, my what you got in your nose cold turkey dad. My once he turned his back ain't no turning back dad. My who needs a map dad. My Ellie Pearl used to say dad. My million skeletons inside the soapbox dad. My steal anything that ain't nailed down dad. My I'll come up to that damn school tomorrow dad. My eat as much as you want dad. My they used to call me booby dad. My been saying he's 70 since he was 60 dad. My been saying money ain't his problem since I can remember dad. My been talking about the chocolate brown Cadillac with the cream interior since I can remember dad my open face grilled cheese heated up at the bottom of the oven dad my east coast jawbreaker my 15 to 20 minutes late with no cell phone dad my walk with one hand out and twice as fast as everybody my Michigan sore thumb my bullshit referee my blue jumpsuit doused in cologne. My call four times in a row with no shame. My care package with four broken watches and mom's old portraits. My smart ass Jack O'Lantern. Oh, hero. Unforgettable planet. Garden of ripe roses. I curse and lift up every clock. My me. My hands of flesh that dug out the light. I gotta say, it feels so good to not be in my apartment writing papers. I too, I'm like at the end of, I've been in college forever. It's been like, it's like 12 years of slave, except it's like 12 years of college, just whole horrible, I hate it. Y'all are setting me free right now. That's it. <laughs> my name is Angel Nafis, I was born in, <laughs> stop. Okay, it's so real, it's so true. <laughs> Gravity, after Carrie Mae Weems' Kitchen Table series. One, the straw. Can you throw this away? Maybe you should hire more black staff. Where are you really from? You're not busy, are you? You look ethnic today. Where's the African-American section? Can you turn the music down faster, faster, faster? Let me see those eyes, beautiful. If you were mine, I'd never let you leave the house. It's like you went straight to Africa to get this one. Is that your hair? I mean your real hair, black ass. Your gums are black, you black, you stink, you need a perm. I don't mean to be racist, but you're scarred over. I'm the one bleeding. You're just gonna rip apart whatever I say. You've said sorry only two times. We tacitly agreed, then dead me. Two, the camel's back. When you born, 
on somebody else's river in a cursed boat. It's all downhill from there. Ha, just kidding. I tell you what I don't have time for, but I don't have time. Catch up, interrogate that boss, bitch. Halo, I juke the apocalypse fluff. My feathers diamond, my neck boom like an 808, one in a million. I don't want no scrubs, you don't know my name. Everything I say is a spell. I'm 25, I'm 90, I'm 10, I'm a moonless charcoal, a sour lover, hidden teeth beneath the velvet. I'm here and your eyes lucky. I'm here and your future lucky, ha! God told me to tell you I'm pretty, ha. My skin might as touch the buildings I walk by, ha. Every day I'm alive, the weather reports say gold. I know, I know. I should leave y'all alone. Salt earth love to stay salty, but here go the mirror again, egging on my spirit, why I can't go back, or the reasons it happened, named like a carriage of fire. Baby, it's real. The white face peeking through the curtains, mule and God. I'm blunted off my own stank. I'm bad. I dig graves when I laugh. Ha ha hum. In the chorus of one of my favorite songs are three throat clearing sounds, sometimes depicted as ha ha hum. On lyrics websites such as azlyrics.com, lyricstime.com, and anysonglyrics.com. A sound we make when we talk with the mouths of Jews, Hanukkah, Lahayim, Chutzpah, voiceless fricative. Russians have a letter for it in block and X in Cyrillic two C's back to back in the words good, хорошо, and bad, плохо. They have other letters I love for sh, ts, sht, j, u. The sound Kanye makes, it's not unlike the French R, how my name falls back into the mouth like it's collapsing, saha. <laughs> In Russian, the R would roll as when my great-grandmother said her name, as when my great-grandfather called to her. My name means princess in Hebrew. Kanye's means the only one in Swahili, a language once written in Arabic script, now written with letters like R's, switched in the 1800s, trying for sounds like N's and N'd to begin words. The mouths we speak with are hidden by our other mouths. And then this is Adventures. And, uh, and so <laughs> so this, the, the poems argue with themselves. I felt like poetry was broken, so it's, and everything started to collapse. So if, you, if it sounds like I'm arguing, I'm arguing. <laughs> Adventures, uh, five year anniversary of Katrina already. I remember Bush reading a story to a classroom of children and not leaving, the book upside down. Do, do I wanna believe that? No, that was after the planes flew into the World Trade Center. On NBC, Kanye spoke out. I watched this clip over and over. He looks like he's going to cry. He says, George Bush doesn't care about black people and they change who the camera's on. They move to Chris Tucker stumbling over every scripted word. Then on ABC, an interview, 
quote, I'm working, I'm working off the cusp here. I'm working off the top of my mind. I'm not reading the teleprompter. I'm letting, I'm speaking from the heart. And that thing got dialed up and typed, typed into the heart. And that was that. Do you think it was fair, asked the interviewer. But that wouldn't be my first question. How does your heart work? What else in the body could be the teleprompter? The internet winds around not too many links before I find an interview between Larry King and Dr. Jan Adams, the cosmetic surgeon who operated on Kanye's mother the day before she died. Adams went on the show to formally announce that he would not partake in the interview at the wishes of the West family. I'm disgusted by him because I've begun to love your mother. I'm working in the darkness between her teeth. I'm reading the measurements of her skull, which is an excuse to put my fingers in her hair. She dedicated a whole chapter of her memoirs, Raising Kanye, to what he said about Bush and Katrina to their trip to Houston. They brought Halloween masks to the children and 15 furnished homes for 15 families for one year, though no one reported on this, not one Houston Chronicle article. Kanye had said in that NBC clip, I've even been shopping before, even giving a donation, so now I'm calling my business manager right now to see what's, what is the biggest amount I can give. What is the biggest amount so that how much remains? I can't look up something like that. A number I can't imagine. After the earthquake in Haiti, Noah and I donated $20 at Wegmans, and our cashier told us it was the largest donation all day. In one verse in 2007, Kanye raps, feeling like Katrina with no FEMA. And I would guess he dreams about Katrina. About making a song, Kanye said, I think about how people will react when they hear this. I think about how they will react to a certain point in the song. So you know, a lot of time I try to build it up like an adventure. And he does. And they are. And I can imagine the water beginning to enter the house. Down like a shot. Falling into unearthed light or something like that is who I was last night. You bought me a drink you didn't know the name of and told me I could get it. You, not the drink, which I downed, even though it was my ninth of the night, the drink, not you. Dance hall, always dance hall. A manner of movement learned and not easily lost, so I wind my hips anyway, and something is happening to you. You about to start some shit, and I say good, not because it would be. I haven't been touched in a while. Don't start something you can't finish is maybe the worst advice I've ever heard. As you drop a handful of my ass, thudding down a small flight of stairs. That's what I am. A small flight of stairs. A small flight down. Y'all know what an erasure is? If you don't, look it up. Juicy, an erasure. Intro, all grip, yeah, all me. Nothing lived above, buildings called on me. Feed my all, all, verse one, all. I used my every attack, my red match. Remember, you never take now, cause sin I used to call. If you don't, chorus, hold. I'll give you verse two change all day. Keep me, miss me. Play me close like life without ears. I dropped all, verse three. 
Dead money handles one room. On her back, of course. My face, no heat. Why we thirst? All, all. Don't you know the house mad? Uh, thank y'all so much. This is mad fun. Uh, last, last poem, and thank you. I could ask, but I think they use tweezers. The shoulder is a complicated organ. Femoral, artery, lymph nodes, tendons, all those joints. If a bullet goes through you, there's also the clothing. Oh yeah, what did you think? I mean, if it's just this, then that's different. But if it's two layers of that, those are other impurities. The body does its job, just one function to release what cannot stay. He walked into the ER, smiled. I need a doctor, thanks man. Blood stops moving to the big towns. The brain is a big town. The heart is a big town. The kidneys are hot spots like Vegas built to handle armies on vacation. The blood learns to bend another way like the legs of a crane. They make bullets different nowadays. In the good old days, a bullet went in and out and the holes match. Now, a 22, a 38 expands in the body, absorbs like a tampon function, pull in all life. He was ordering drive through food, McDonald's food, not really food, maybe like french fries, maybe like a Sprite, maybe like a number two, things that don't feel like food in the mornings down the street from my house, from his mama house, a clog. At the third counter, this guy has a gun. A gun has an operation, has composition, is orchestral, is an organ of some complication, ephemeral. The bullets are small. A shoulder is innocuous until you become a nurse. The only reason he died was speed and proximity. But if it's a couple layers of cloth, well then, you have to get that out too. When asked about my hometown and admission, filthy incantation, I dare not speak its name. I either claim the South Bronx by maternal bloodline, a tactic commonly known as the boogie down bandwagon maneuver, or shift the tone altogether. Invoke DMX and David Berkowitz to make the place sound so scary you will never want to go. On its own, the word Yonkers sounds like a rare breed of pest, a blue carnivore that lays eggs in the cabinet. I am my father's son. I cannot claim what I do not love. I have carried this place in my shame folder since the 90s. We are long past polite. Oh, thanks. Uh, when asked about my hometown, an anecdote. My best friend D was birthday cake with knives in it. Last April, he caught his ex-best man with his ex-wife and came for them both like a god of war. Rolled on homeboy's crib 42 deep, stood on his porch with a fresh pistol, arms akimbo, like he had seen this moment in a prophetic dream and planned all poses well in advance. D called for the traitor twice by name, slapped a purple warhead out of his little brother's mouth just for show. And that was on a Sunday. His parents weren't even home. Thank you. And uh, I was inspired by Aziza. I'm gonna go off book with one. And I think Angel likes this poem, so I'm gonna do this poem. So this is uh, 
for all my folks, it's for a group of 13-year-olds I taught two years ago when the George Zimmerman verdict came down. Um, it's for all of us who survive what we were never meant to survive. Come celebrate with me that every day something has tried to kill me and has failed. Lucille Clifton. We praise always. We elegant everywhere. We die too soon. We joyous anyhow. Say it. That every day is a toast to living, an ode to the way we made resilience in art. My classroom is a self-love anthem in nine parts. Together, we unlearn shame. We dream silly. We sing what we cannot say anywhere else. So say it. Say I am 12 years old and my joy is stainless. The next time the world calls me subhuman, I will remind it that spell check is a virtue. Say, I think the word you're looking for is subterranean. 10,000 leagues too deep for easy definitions fleet as the feet of those Harriet Tubman kept close as kin. So yes, we do start every single day like this, like poetry gives us a new grammar for our bodies. Say it, I exist in excess of my anguish. I am not invisible. I am a beam of light, too brilliant for untrained vision. I am not target practice. I am not a bullseye with rhythm. This breath is no illegal substance. So sing it, a ballad for the youngest son. How he survives beat cops that see Caesars and sees up scream, freeze, hands up to chain his flame. Praise the lyric name, Quavangene, Latavia, Debrickishaw, Devante. How they make the mouth a musician. Sing it when you're a seventh grader in Philly and they try to turn your middle school into a ghost town. May your voice be atmospheres imploding. Sing it with conviction, say I'm an Liddell lyricist, metaphors Everest, anybody hating on my halo was irrelevant, flow like Baldwin, Clifton, Gwendolyn, Zora, Langston, Cullen, Ellison, the authors that offer a glimpse of what heaven is, say it, say we fly as zeppelins, heavens high at our heaviest, dignified, even when strangers try to make our beauty a burden, say no one will make my beauty a burden, say no, do not touch my hair, say for real. The next time you try, we will have a problem. Say this skin is no black hole. It is a holy blackness. I cannot shake, say Harlem shake, say the appropriation train stops here, say Lindy Hop and Hip Hop are half sisters. That's why they got the exact same last name. Say this is the last time you call me out of my name. The last time you call me anything other than what I claimed for myself when I woke up this morning, say no one will co-opt our mourning. We will honor the dead, praise what they left behind. No one can make us afraid of being alive. My people stay liar than live. They always have, say always have, say always will. Thank you for listening, and thank you to the staff and volunteers at Housing Works Bookstore that make these events possible, as well as our event partners and attendees and anyone who's ever bought a book, a beer, a sandwich, or anything else at our bookstore. Housing Works is a healing community of people living with and affected by HIV-AIDS. Our mission is to end the dual crises of homelessness and AIDS through relentless advocacy, the provision of life-saving services, and entrepreneurial businesses which sustain our efforts. 
You can visit the bookstore in person at 126 Crosby Street in downtown New York and online at housingworksbookstore.org. You can also follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, Facebook, Instagram, Pinterest, and more, and keep up with the bookstore through our online newsletter. We'll be back with another episode every other week. Thanks again for listening.